You're listening to My Unlived Life, a podcast about the path not taken. I'm Miriam Robinson. A few years ago, my life fell apart in pretty dramatic fashion, and I found myself feeling that somewhere I'd made a wrong turn. I suddenly felt very far from home and family, and felt even farther from myself. I began to wonder, what if I had done things differently? We don't like to ask this question. It threatens to trap us in the past without a map back to the here and now. So I decided to make the map. Each episode, I interview someone about another course their lives could have taken. We begin at the point where their paths diverged, and together, step by step, we imagine ourselves into the lives they never lived. Because these lives have a lot to teach us about ourselves, if we let them. Today, I spoke to Carrie Franzman, a comic creator and artist who tells visual stories in books, newspapers, animations, sculptures on iPads, and in virtual reality. Her comic strips and graphic stories have been published everywhere from The Guardian to The Times to The Telegraph, and her art has appeared in the South Bank Center, National Portrait Gallery, and the Manchester Art Gallery. Her new book, which she co-created with her husband, is the truly groundbreaking gender-swapped fairy tales, which will absolutely have you confronting your own assumptions about gender. Carrie lives in London with her husband and their daughter. Carrie and I discussed what her life might have looked like if the IVF treatment she underwent several years ago had failed, and she'd never managed to conceive a child. Along the way, we talked about the mismatch between our perceptions and the reality of motherhood, her keen obsession with communes, and the beauty of animatronic storytelling machines. During our session, Carrie decided to do a little drawing, so you may hear the sound of her pencils on paper. So Carrie, we're here today to discuss a path you're curious about, and it's quite a recent one. Can you tell us what you've brought today? I guess I initially thought about, well, what kind of thing do I regret in life? And I I tend to not have regret. Um, But then I did think, one of the main junctions which I've been at and really spent time sitting at that junction and wondering what my life would be like if I'd taken the other path um, is the, well, having children or not. I was about to say the decision to have children or not, but that actually is not right. Um, It's just the act of having kids or not having kids. Um, so, So that's what I'm really interested in discussing today. So Carrie, if we're going to talk about what your life would have been like without children, we need to talk about how that might have happened, Um, which in your case means that in your alternate path, your IVF fails and you decide not to continue trying for a child. What was IVF like for you? It was interesting. We we did IVF for about two years um, and did two rounds of IVF. The first one was um, with the NHS and then the second one... um, we kind of we had the embryo ready, and uh, that her embryo sat at the blastocyst cell in the freezer for for um, six months, and then we got her put back in, um, and she worked. The first round didn't work. Um, our odds were higher with the first round, but it didn't work. And then with her, I think our odds were like thirty percent, thirty five percent success rate. And we really did spend a lot of time imagining what our life would be like with her, and what it would be like well, not with her, with a child and what our life would be like without it. And I think it's really interesting to to imagine that because our, our conception of what it is, especially as a woman, to be a mother is so romanticised. And before you've actually had a child, 
it's it's a very it's one thing, and then once you've had a child, the reality is, is very different. I think it sounds quite like um evil almost coming on here and saying I want to imagine a life without my daughter because obviously she's here now and we absolutely adore her and I know who she is but when you're doing IVF you really have to live in that dual reality of I'm really trying hard to achieve this thing which is a child but at the same time I'm really aware that this might not be possible for me. Let's go back then and let's get really specific in terms of what would have happened because that's what we want to do. We want to sort of imagine ourselves into the scenario where another life would have been possible or another path would have been possible. So presumably in order to not have become a mother, the second round of IVF would not have worked. Is that right? I think we probably would have continued another couple of rounds of IVF after the first two. I mean, they were really much more stressful than I would have anticipated. And and going through the NHS as well, doing IVF is a really, really long process. You kind of wait three months between every test and procedure and appointment. And it was a really, really long process and really stressful. And when, when the first one didn't work, it was absolutely like one of the worst days, I think, for us. It was one of the darkest days we've, we've lived. So I think I'm I'm quite like a determined person. So I think I would have continued, you know, to do rounds of IVF until the impact had become too much on us psychologically, physically, and financially, I guess. So maybe we would have done three or four rounds and then given up. Okay. So Carrie, can you just say a little bit more about the physical impact? Were there any other elements there? Everyone's different, but me and John, um, we really went through a kind of, um, we were really strict with ourselves and each other doing as much as we possibly could to be as healthy as we could so we were you know exercise we were cutting out alcohol caffeine sugar (laughs) we were eating only organic things you know we really we were really putting pressure on ourselves and I think it's a sense of trying to control something which you you ultimately feel out of control about. You've already said that the first time that the IVF didn't work was a was a really dark day for you now that the second time doesn't work what is that like for you too I don't know it's weird the first time there was also the build-up so we did it was like a two-year wait to that point so I think if the second time hadn't worked I mean the second time was quicker and less intrusive we didn't have to do all the drugs so there weren't so many injections you get a really stressful two-week wait. And so I think I would have felt less absolutely floored as I did the first time, but more jaded and exhausted and just low-level depression rather than anxiety, acute anxiety like I had the first time. So if I hadn't worked, I definitely would have wanted to stop the drugs as soon as possible and have my period because that's always like a new kind of fresh start, I guess every time you, that happens you kind of feel okay my body's back to my own there's a real sense when you're doing IVF of an, an invasion of your body and I think weirdly when you're pregnant that continues when you've done IVF you think oh it's gonna be great when I'm pregnant you have this sense that pregnancy will be the kind of reaching the summit of the mountain whereas actually pregnancy you're at the very foot of the mountain <laughs> and the summit is having given birth you've now got a baby you know there's so many more mountains to climb and you're so jaded you get to the foot of that yeah and I think when when I did get pregnant it was that sense of constantly like oh when is my body going to stop being invaded now it's literally invaded and it's changing and it's out of my control so I think if I hadn't got pregnant the second time it would have been really depressing 
but I think I would have also had the relief of having my body back to my own again. So when that's all over, the two weeks wait, you know, the 12 days wait has passed. Um, you've done your pregnancy test. It hasn't worked. There's a sense of relief. So you're experiencing some depression, but at the same time, you're feeling a bit of relief. You're feeling like you've got your body back. What's happening for you with work right now? My work's always been a little bit um, easier, I guess, because I'm I'm completely freelance. So I've I've got control over my schedule and I can be flexible. I remember like missing out a lot of um, appointments, and I, you know I, I had a list of all these amazing things I was invited to abroad, these festivals and things which I couldn't do because of that. So I guess when that's over. I can start doing some of that again. And I probably would throw myself into work a bit. Oh, and I would probably, like I did after the first time it didn't work, and immediately work out an action plan because that's how I like to function. So I'd be like calling people, getting advice, speaking to my friends who'd done IVF, um, working out when I was going to do the next round, I guess. And what do you work out then? When are you going to do the next round? I'd give myself a bit of a break and a bit of a treat, maybe like go away somewhere. Where do you go? Mexico. I love Mexico. It's full of it's a, a a country full of artists, and I don't know. It's like definitely my my spirit country. So yeah, I'd go back there and immerse myself in Mexican folk art for as long as I could. And then I guess after a couple of months, when my body had kind of had a bit of a break, probably reluctantly booking another IVF round, and we would have had to go private at that stage. So I guess maybe we wouldn't have been able to afford to go to Mexico. Well, let's decide. Do you go to Mexico? And what does that mean financially in terms of your ability to do another round of IVF? We'd been saving for ages because we knew for two years that we, we're not, we're not very, um, we, we do save. We're, we're pretty frugal. We don't go to Mexico very often. Have you been to Mexico before? Have you done this? Yeah, I have done this, but I would go back. So let's come back. So you 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 do it. You go to Mexico and then you come back. And are you saying that you think you can still afford to do another round of private IVF? Yeah, probably. Because you guys have been frugal. Okay. And and you do yeah, it. Yeah, why not? Yeah, because we have not only frugal, we um, saved because it took two years. So we knew that we'd probably have to go private. So we were spending those two years pretty frugally. Plus, we weren't drinking alcohol. <laughs> that would have saved us money. <laughs> so, yeah, let's imagine that one. Okay, so you take your booze money and you get another round of IVF. And how does that go? Can we not stay in Mexico for a bit longer? We can stay in Mexico for a bit longer. Tell us what happen- What else happens in Mexico. How long are you in Mexico? I'd like to go for two months, please. And I'd like a residency at the Museum of Popular Art, which is my favorite museum in the whole world. And I'd have a dream of doing a residency. In fact, we talked about doing a residency there. Is that realistic? As in, is that what you do? Yeah, it's realistic. And then it's conceivable. And then... Yeah, okay. it was on the card. We'd have a residency there and go to all the different studios, different artists, and I'd learn how to do wood carving and painting and make trees of lives and dioramas and paper mache and clay and all the things, amazing skills there. Um, yeah, that would be my absolute fantasy. There's one actually in the um, British Museum, um, a huge one. Carrie, what's a tree of life? It's like these massive trees and they show people's lives I guess so your your podcast is exploring going down different branches so they'll have like little it's all modeled in clay and they're huge trees and they'll show like um circles of life from birth to 
you know, childhood to, you know, often it's just marriage and old age and death. But, um, yeah, all modelled in a tree and clay. They're just gorgeous. I want to make one. So you're doing this residency. You're you're meeting loads of artists. You're expanding your own uh, sort of creative toolkit, as it were. Are you and John meeting other people? Do you develop a social network there? I think we'd probably be you know, throwing ourselves into that, but have in the background this kind of um, sadness and also the shadow hanging over our heads of returning back to to get on with this other round of IVF. But, I mean, for me, I guess my work is, 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 a, is a therapy and also it's a way which I can, even though it's a great distraction from from trouble, there's also a way which you process them. You know, like I, I'm a visual storyteller, so... I can work through what I'm going through in my art. So I'd, I'd hope that I'd, I'd do some of that while there. How about John? Is he able to process while you guys are in Mexico? It's interesting because when you go through IVF, you're really aware of like the different ways, which because you're dealing with something which is happening to you, especially if you're a woman, something's happening to your body very immediately. But at the same time, you're also dealing with your partner going through grief and anxiety. And, and then they're dealing with a huge amount of guilt because they don't have to have such an impact on their body. It's a very unequal thing to go through. But you're both trying to support each other and also express your frustration. It's a really difficult balancing act. And it really feels that it kind of kicks your relationship in the balls, you know, or in the ovaries. <laughs> Definitely in the ovaries. <laughs> Um, and how long, how long do you say you'd said at the start of this that you thought it would be two months? Is that what it still feels like? You think you're there for two months? Yes, because I am an absolute, I'm good at doggedly sticking to things I don't want to do. I am very comfortable with, uh, discomfort and just having to, you know, what do they say? Put your nose to the grindstone. <laughs> My nose would be there. Um, and I would be getting on with it you you return and you put your nose to the grindstone and you do another round and yeah that doesn't work we would have had one more embryo we did have another embryo after our daughter so that would have been the one which would have been put back in our third go so that would have been less traumatic as a procedure the procedure wouldn't have been so dramatic They'd have put it in and we'd have just had to wait for 12 days to find out if it worked or not without injections of drugs and the rest of it. So that wouldn't have been as difficult, but it would have been really disappointing. And I think by then we would have probably just been absolutely exhausted. So you, you go, you, you've come back from Mexico, you've, you've gritted your teeth and gone through this next round. It hasn't worked again. You're disappointed, but you've kind of, this isn't your first rodeo, so you're kind of dealing with it. A little bit better um is John dealing with it as well I think John in general would have found not having a child more difficult than me so this would have been more of a hit to him I think it would yeah I think the impact on him would have been bigger so then let's think so John's a bit more upset about this than you are you're taking it on the chin a bit more what do you guys decide to do do you decide to do it again so it would have been a much bigger commitment at that stage, wouldn't it? Because um, we'd then have to go for the full cycle again. And the, actually, the last round would have only cost us like a grand and a half, which only, I mean, you know, that's a huge expense for most people. But 
just putting it back doesn't an embryo back doesn't cost as much it going through the whole thing so that our, our fourth round in, in in our minds would have had to cost us eight like six to eight thousand I think it because we would have had to go privately and that would have been a big impact but also a physical impact because we would have gone for the full drugs again we'd have had to have the injections you know hyper you know sorry stimulating um, my ovaries and egg production and going through an operation so that would have been a very physically demanding thing to do so you think you would have gone for it you would have spent the money again on a fourth round of IVF so yeah we would have done that and it wouldn't have worked okay so you do that and it doesn't work it's not as simple as it not working I think that's the problem with IVF because you just if you've got you know a bunch of embryos then the temptation would be to use up all of those embryos trying again so it can just drag on and on but I think at that point having gone through that round let's say we got two embryos we put two back let's say that didn't work so now you're saying this is the point you've done another large round this is four rounds of IVF with a delightful jaunt to Mexico in its midst what do you do now are you done yeah I think you know I think we we had these discussions way before and I think John always said, you know, he didn't want to put me through. He had massive guilt of feeling like he was putting me through it. And he was always saying, if if you ever don't want to do this, you don't have to, you know, um, you have to tell me if you where your boundaries are and all the rest of it. He he was really aware of not putting pressure on me. Whereas I'm actually like, like I will just do something to get it done. And I, I never thought we couldn't have kids. I always thought, yep, I'll just keep going until we can. So I kind of knew that I, I would just keep going and going and going. I think if it hadn't worked at that point, that would, would be that. And I think to some degree, after going through all of that, once we grieved, we definitely would be grieving. We'd be really depressed and sad. And John, I think, would be, you know, he he's an absolute amazing father. He's like just one of these fathers who it's just his identity. He loves it. He would always choose to spend time with our daughter over pretty much everything. So that would, I think, have impacted him. But bearing in mind, we don't know what it's like to actually be parents at that point. So we've got this very different sense of an imagined role as a mother and a father. And I really think, like, uh, it's weird kind of keeping these two lives in your head because you know with hindsight that that idea which you had of motherhood wasn't reality. I mean, I really imagined... You know, I'd see all these romanticized versions of mothers and children, and I'd I'd look at oh, I remember before I had a child, I would look at pregnant women, and I'd think, oh, you look so smug, <laughs> you're so smug. That must just be lovely for you, and I'd feel really like bitter about it. And and then as soon as I got pregnant, I was like, why was I envious of these people, these poor people, hobbling around, sweating and peeing themselves and all of your bones are aching and so I think it's quite interesting isn't it because if you imagine I'd still probably be in that sense that envying people with children and um and pregnant people and idealizing this role of mothers that got ripped away from me as soon as they had a child and you get sometimes when you're you're with your child like in nowadays when I'm with my daughter uh, I see people looking at me like in a kind of romanticized smile when I'm like walking down the road with her or carrying her and she's screaming at me and she's grotty and I need to get her home before she sleeps. They're looking at me through this kind of soft lighting like I'm some kind of a memory of their childhood or their their motherhood or parenthood. That's a really interesting insight into what you're 
mental landscape would have been like because you would have decided that you just need to stop now, but you still would have had this level of jealousy and idealization of pregnant women and of mothers. But you have to go forward. So what do you what do you do next? You've got you've got your Mexico residency in the bag. Presumably you've been working and creating this time whole time alongside doing your IVF. We've probably covered roughly about the amount of time that your pregnancy would have been, give or take. I think we're probably about a year or so on from your actual conception. So we're really in a different we're really in a different universe now. You you officially do not have a daughter. So what what do you do now? First of all, I definitely think that I would create art about it. And I, I remember meeting somebody, a Finnish comic artist, I think, and she said that she'd gone, one of her friends had not been able to conceive and had had a funeral, that sounds so macabre, but she'd had like, she'd kind of put to rest the idea of the child who she was going to have, who she couldn't have. And it was a, she invited everybody and had a ceremony to say goodbye to that thing which could have been. I don't know. I think these are like, especially in, in, you know, with your podcast, like talking about other lives, I think these are one of the major junctions in people's lives of, of the, the basic three or four things you imagine as a child. Like, who am I going to meet? What job am I going to have? Am I going to have a family? They're like some of the really basic ideas of what we're fed, of the benchmarks of, of what our life should look like. And I think that there would be a real sense of a door closing you know, a, a death of possibilities, I guess. There's always that, isn't there? So I think that that would be really feel like that at that stage. And I'd probably make them, make them fucking art about it. Where are you in this now? Because you're, you're making some art about your grief. We don't quite know what form that takes yet. Um, are you, are you feeling liberation? Yeah, I think I am. I think once um, a decision has been made, it's the grey area which is the most difficult. It's having to remain in this unknown world, the Mm. no man's land of not knowing. I've always found that most most difficult. And once the decision's been made, I remember we used to say when we were going through IVF, if, you know, someone could pop down from the sky, from our future, and tell us, you can't have children. Like, that, you just can't have it. I would have been painful, but we would have been okay whereas with IVF there's the hope and the disappointment and the hope and the disappointment and deciding when you need and the stats and the chances and when you should cut your losses and I think once it had failed and we'd made that decision maybe it would be a a still a gray area in the sense that we'd say oh we could have did we make the right decision um maybe that would still be at the back of our mind but hopefully hopefully and for the sake of our fantasy I'd like to be there already we would we would have accepted it and and you know really thought about the opportunity that gave us but I think I would definitely be partying way more (laughs) (laughs) there would be a lot of going out a lot of festivals we've got a bunch of our friends who don't have children you know very involved in the festival world and we'd probably be going there helping them out you know losing our minds and forgetting a lot and uh embracing liberation but maybe not in that healthy a way okay so that's where i think we're roughly up to sort of probably the end of 2018 the beginning of 2019 and you're partying a lot 
And is John partying a lot with you? Are you guys both doing it? And are you doing it for the same reasons? Is he feeling liberated? No, less. <laughs> He's feeling less liberated than me. Is his partying a, a different, does it have a different quality? I think we're both enjoying it at the time. And then the next morning, <laughs> crying, crying into our hangover breakfast. I don't know. I think before you have kids, usually, I think, well, for us, not everyone, you're 30, the end of your 20s, the early 30s, whatever. I think the partying stops working, doesn't it? It's like it used to just be amazing and you'd go out and you didn't know where the night was going to take you and the possibility seemed endless. And then, you know, you find someone who you love and you want to stay with and then you're like, oh, well, that's that's not a possibility anymore, <laughs> you know, going out and meeting anyone. And then, you know, um, it doesn't work in the same way. It's not as exciting as it used to be. And, you know, the the people who keep wanting to do it relentlessly are they become usually more and more sad and there are people who are trying to escape things. And as much as I like to be somebody, imagine that I've got that hedonistic thing. I do always have that kind of, um, I guess, awareness of escapism not working. <laughs> After we'd done the parking bit, I know what we'd do next. Okay. We'd definitely start down the spirituality route. And we'd go off somewhere and go to like a commune. Yeah, that would be our detox. <laughs> How long, Where's the commune? I don't know. I think let's just keep one in like the UK. Like some kind of Scotland maybe. And just go somewhere where we could be more spiritual and yeah try a different kind of living I think one thing which would be really important to us at that stage would be community if we didn't have children one of the biggest things aside from the impact to you when you're younger is this idea that when you're older you might be alone you might not have that family so I think it would be really important for us to create a, a family and a sense of community through friends and that would become much more important. And I wanted I wanted to ask, and this can feed into this, which is that obviously in your real life with your daughter, you have managed to continue to create and to be artistic uh, and to produce. Yeah, but less so. I mean, uh, you know, less so than I would have if I hadn't had a child. Uh, what were you making? What are you making during this period? First when you're partying and then when you move to your commune? I would have made rubbish art out of my grief immediately. And then okay. more insightful uh, of my grief as time went on. Um, okay. And probably rubbish art while I was, you know, partying. I would definitely be able, my, my I mean, 100% my, my, my career would be more successful. I mean, the impact that eight months of full-time maternity leave has on your career, especially when you're freelance, is massive. So I would go to a commune with John. John's always been up for that. He um, grew up in a commune I guess in a way when he was very young and we've always sort of said that we'd explore our spiritual side more we both you know went to meditation and various things like that so that wasn't alien to us anyway and I've always been really interested in communal living but John's like both into that but also quite private so and I am actually too so I think we'd both find a a commune which allowed us to be individuals but also have that community so maybe a place which had house which we could go in which would be our private resident but then a big communal hall and kitchen and community activities and everybody would go together to cook and 
um, create maybe workshops. And is this is this a place where you you sort of move to live, or is this a place where you like Mexico? You go for a couple of months and then you return to real life. I think let's imagine I, we go there for a year. All right, great. So you're there for a year, which is getting us pretty close to present day. Um, do you create anything in particular during that period? Do you publish something, create something publishable, or yeah, I I really like to. This is something which I'd like to do anyway. It's definitely on the cards. I'd like to just do a comic about different kind of communes, a com commune comic, <laughs> communic. Anyway, so yeah, I would write a comic about communal living, and I would probably like at that time maybe to tour around some other communes and work out how they live. And I just love, 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 love this idea of people creating mini utopian versions of what society could be and how that works and yeah like I really believe in mindfulness and meditation and um we've always said that if we faced real adversity we would that would be something which we'd want to explore more and we'd meditate loads and my art would probably transform I'm actually not a very good communal artist I'm not like some of my artistic friends are brilliant at like collaborating with big groups and creating their art whereas I'm definitely like for me the actual act of creation is very I love that isolation and um meditative state you get into when you're drawing so yeah I would create art by myself within a commune <laughs> that's how does that compare to because your book death of the artist is about as close as it gets to creating art within a commune right can you talk a little bit about that yeah, but those people are all horrible, selfish. Um, in that book, they're all, you know, um, they're they're not together. And actually, my view, if we move on, is that after a year, we would hate the commune. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because communes never work, and also there's always some crazy, like egomaniac guy who's actually like taking advantage of the girls who come into the commune and they're, he's at the top. And I mean, we've got so many examples of that, haven't we? I obsessively watch like Netflix commune documentaries and I haven't seen any Netflix commune documentary which doesn't have some egotistical guy at the top who's secretly taking advantage of all the women, <laughs> the young women. Is that what happens in this commune? Is there a guy? Definitely that happened. He's that the guy. And, you know, maybe at first he wasn't like, he was much more like accepting of everybody. But then eventually someone would rise to the top of the leader and they'd be arrogant and there'd be power struggles. And the commune just wouldn't be the same as when we started and those golden days. Plus, I think inherently me and John are quite individualistic people as much as we would like to be communal people. So it wouldn't work out for us and we'd have to leave. And where do you come back to? We'd come back to our families. And one of the things which would be definitely important is spending time with our, our nieces and nephews. Um, I think that would be way more important to us if we didn't have a kid. It was when we didn't have our daughter. Um, I mean, obviously it still is, but we would look after my nieces and nephews a lot more and um, go travel abroad to see John's nieces and nephews as well. So we would really miss them and we wouldn't want to go far from them and we'd really want to be a big part in their life as well. All right. So you're 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 back in London, you've lived your communal life, you're traveling a bit to see family, uh, but mainly you're based 
you're based at home in London. Oh, maybe we move down to Brighton. That's what we do next. Okay, why Brighton? Because I love Brighton. I love the sea and uh, the the comic community there is absolutely gorgeous. And actually, the accommodation would have been cheaper as well. And I think maybe we would have been like my partner would have been doing more work. He d- he digitally works as well, so he could move online more. And hopefully, we'd be doing more creative stuff and less uh, tied to jobs. And is that you're he is feeling a little more freedom to do creative stuff because you don't have a child, so there's less pressure to earn yes I mean definitely right I think for men often when you have a child the fear of um you know when especially when your partner's on maternity leave and that burden on your shoulders feeling that you have to support the family in adverted commas I think is is, whether imagined or social or real um is definitely there for a lot of guys so he would not have that and um, I'd like to think we, we do a bit of collaboration artistically anyway, so I'd really like to do more. So we'd go down to Brighton, and in my fantasy, what we would do is make um, animatronic storytelling machines and robots together. We're going to need a little more description. <laughs> when we were young in Edinburgh, we used to go to a uh, museum of childhood, and they had these little kind of animatronic storytelling boxes and you'd put a penny into the into a slot and then the machine would kind of whirl into action and you'd see something like a scene from Sweeney Todd with the barber chopping off a little doll's head and it would like you could see the cut through of the house and the doll's head would roll down into a basket and then a little doll would take out a pie from the oven below it was awesome I love those machines anyway I've always wanted to make them and I it could do the arty bit and John could do the techie bit and then we'd make loads of those machines again. I, well, the question that's coming up for me is, is are these things mutually exclusive to parenthood? Is communal living mutually exclusive? Is creating animatronics mutually exclusive? So partying is definitely. Yes. <laughs> that's mutually ex- exclusive. I mean, I had, adore my daughter and I know now I know her now you know what I mean I could never not have her if I hadn't ever known her it would have been a completely different situation but I I know her and she is so much part of my life and absolutely adore her so I couldn't I, I it's so difficult to to say that life then and this life now that's like that life which we've talked about is the is the fantasy which I used to have while rocking my daughter at three four months I remember we used to sit on this giant inflated ball and bounce her and I would count to a thousand bounces literally counted to a thousand in the middle of the night sleep deprived and just absolutely longing for escapism that's the kind of way which my brain would have gone and it's very different experience to when you've got a two-year-old um and now I can go and have so much fun with her and I can go and see the world and escape the world in a way which I, you know, I escape convention all the time with her when we walk down the street and she starts pulling faces at a stranger walking by, you know. I, I kind of escape convention when we go to an art gallery and she runs around, like, shouting about how weird the artwork is and telling me that it's boring and let's move quicker. And I'm like, yeah, it's boring, let's move quicker. You know, like, so you, they're the freedom when you have a child, in a way. Um, And I, I don't feel that same need for the escape of them like I did when she was very young. I don't think it would have been the same. Like, yeah, I've thought of taking my daughter off to, you know, commune or the rest of it, but I don't think I would. I just, 
would feel more responsible for the environment which I put her in and making sure that she had uh, a routine and uh, felt secure. And the animatronics, (laughs) that is a project not in a million years we could do. Actually, me, me and my husband have been creating a book together and that's been really tricky because usually we, we created a project before we had her and it was easier. But now when one of us has to work on the project, uh, the other one has to look after our daughter. You know, so we can't do that together, and that, which, is, which is sad. You know what? Maybe all of this is what we'll do with our retirement plan when, <laughs> when we're in our 50s or 60s and our, our daughter's left home. Maybe we'll, we'll that's just, you, you've just uh, thought out my retirement plan. There you go. Happy to, <laughs> happy to be of service. Well, the, I mean, the only other question that I'm curious about, if you could bring an element of your unlived life into the life you're living now, what would it be? Maybe we have a very limiting idea. I, I think being a mother has made me fearful of a lot of that in a way. I mean, apparently it actually changes your brain. You know, I hate to be a biological reductionist but they do say that you you, you're kind of like anxiety is is heightened um you know you've got to constantly spot danger when your your child's running around trying to put things in their mouth and I do think I'm less adventurous like my desire to travel has just shrunk massively but I'd like to think having gone through that exercise with you guys that um there are other lives and there are other ways of living your life and we really do think ourselves into imagined boxes all the time of of how life can be lived and how small it can be and I think if you get older as well these fantasies you you have less of them and you become more kind of stuck in your view of what life should be it's quite freeing isn't it to to imagine different lives I think you're right especially as parents we get very caught up in what the really classic depiction of what parenthood looks like um, and it looks that way for a reason. As you say, you're exhausted. You don't actually want to do that much. And you have a lot of really pressing needs and you are responsible for another person's life. But it, it doesn't mean that you can't push that boundary a little bit and question question whether or not there's room for a little more experimentation or a little bit more freedom. And we obviously, you obviously adore your daughter. Uh, and obviously, none of us can imagine our lives without our children. And yet... To do so, I think, just allows you to let a little life in, or a little light in. Yeah, I do think that it's a taboo. Like, thinking about, um, you know, I'm going to come on a podcast and chat to you guys about an imagined life without my daughter feels very controversial. And, it's, um, I mean, it's a huge taboo to ever leave your children, right? You, you very rarely hear of a, a woman leaving her children. But that doesn't mean that it's by talking about um saying you know speaking the unspoken thing that we do fantasize about freedom it doesn't mean that you're going to leave your child it just means a completely natural healthy thing when your freedom's taken away from you or it doesn't mean that you don't love your child right and that's the the sort of assumption is that if you ever consider a life you know without them then it means that you don't love them yeah i mean you know women are uh, the impact on on a mother in particular the physical impact of I mean I breastfed you know not everyone does but 
um, your, your, your body, when you're carrying a baby, when you're feeding a baby, when you're physically carrying a baby, when it's outside of you in your arms, um, it's, it's, it's tethered to you. It really is absolutely on you all the time. And then like, as I was saying, that's very much an experience when you've got a young, a young baby rather than a toddler. And I think that it really does um, restrict you and that kind of desperation for autonomy is, is so much more acute when you're um, sleep deprived and exhausted and you've got a child literally like on you all the time. It's, it's kind of terrifying. You've never had this experience of having so little space in your own life. And I think if, if I think, you know, it's very normal and, um, you know, um, a really normal experience for people to experience a postnatal depression and I definitely had some postnatal anxiety I think when um, my daughter was about four months and I it's not surprising you know it's such an impact it's a terrifying impact and yeah I mean I, I, when you're in the midst of that it's people you're fighting constantly with the reality of the situation which is alarming <laughs> and you feel like it's never going to end and at the same time this idealism of what it is to be a mother you know and that's a real tussle women are in the unique position of having you know all those um biological pressures on them but also social pressures as well um you know uh, they've got liberty taken away from them biologically but also um the pressure of having to be what society conceives as a good enough mother I think is huge there we go that's really what it is well and I do think I, I think it frees something up once you do the exercise I think because I, I I think that as you say we're we're not really supposed to think about it and and as we know if we don't think about something and we don't let the air in and give it a little space to breathe then it it festers and it becomes something much, much, much more difficult than if we just allow ourselves to have the, to follow the, the path a little bit and to just think it through a little bit. And I, I, I don't know if you're having this experience, but I know that it, it has the potential to feel like you've either you've lived it through, or as you say, that you can, once you free it up a little bit, you can kind of see where it might land. So maybe it is your retirement plan, or maybe you do start to feed it through into the rest of your life but mainly I think it, it's less tangible than that and it's just this opportunity to give some space absolutely to a really really normal thought so Carrie just before we go can you say something about your book gender swapped fairy tales because it's so unique not just in its content but in how it was created in the first place and it would be lovely just to hear something from you about it the book is uh, gender swapped fairy tales um, I've been working on it with my, my husband um, and he basically created an algorithm which uh, swaps the gender and text, turning all the he's to she's and the king to queens. We've not adjusted the text in any other way. We've not written any, rewritten any stories. We've just applied it to uh, public domain um, fairy tales. And then I've illustrated and reimagined these kind of new worlds where uh, the gender is switched in every way and... Uh, the queens, uh, you know, choose the, the most beautiful prince and take them back to their queendoms. And, um, you know, princes are allowed to be passive and, and precious and rescued. Um, and, yeah, so it's a really um, interesting book. And it's a book which um, very much places the, the analysis of the stories in the reader's hand. It's supposed to be for, you know, people, parents or, you know, 
uh, people to read to their children and um, also, you know, to the kind of thing which hopefully you could buy your slightly sexist uncle and make them rethink, you know, how gender is, is normalized in society. Amazing. Carrie, thank you so much for joining me today. I loved talking to Carrie about art and motherhood, and I felt like our conversation really exemplified the conflict between the two. Carrie said, and she's right, that it's taboo even to contemplate a life without your child. But if you're in love with anything else, your art, your work, your free time, then the thought inevitably comes up, we're just not supposed to say it out loud. In this conversation, we spent a lot of time walking through Carrie's various imagined rounds of IVF, contemplating at each stage whether she would continue. And I think that only once we had been through that process, only once she had proven to me and herself that she had really, really tried, could she give herself permission to imagine a childless life, one that would be lacking the daughter she loved so much, but that would also allow her to be as wild and boundlessly creative as she'd been before becoming a mother. I think that when we assume that two life paths are mutually exclusive, we tend to shut the door on one completely in order to avoid the sense of loss we feel when we think about what could have been. But diving into Carrie's unlived life freed her up to think differently about a path she'd assumed was possible. She joked that we'd figured out her retirement plan, but I think we may have allowed her to connect to that sense of boundlessness, both within her art and within parenting, and also to remember that not now doesn't mean not ever. Communes and animatronics may still await her one day. <laughs>